welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Sumner. And I'm Lucy Goulet, founder of Women in Foreign Policy. And this is the October interview with Wendy Betts for the Women in Foreign Policy and Tech podcast. Wendy is director of Eyewitness to Atrocities, and we're excited to learn more about her work and the career advice she has to share with us. Wendy, welcome. Thanks. I'm looking forward to having this discussion with you and telling you a little bit more about the work that we're doing. So first off, yeah, just give us a little briefing on what is Eyewitness to Atrocities. Sure. Eyewitness to Atrocities is an initiative that was begun by the International Bar Association based in London. And in short, what this project has done is develop a mobile camera application that can be used to record photos and videos of serious human rights violations. And it's doing so in a way that can facilitate the use of these photos and videos in investigations and trials to actually hold the individuals responsible for the violations accountable. So what the app does is it automatically captures the information on where and when the photos and videos are taken and information to show that the file hasn't been tampered with in any way. So unlike a mobile camera where this information can be manipulated, the app records it automatically and safeguards that information so it can be used in court to authenticate the footage. Would you would you have any concrete examples of how it's been used so far you could give us? Well, we only launched the app in June of 2015, so we're about a year out. And we've been spending this time in outreach and dissemination to work with documenting organizations to see how the app might fit into their workflow and help them meet their goals and then work with them to train them on the app. And so this is a quite a time-consuming process. And so we've now reached the point where we have organizations that are regularly using the app. So it's a little premature to have a court use case in particular, we're focusing on atrocity crimes. So those are genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. And that level of crime requires a substantial amount uh, of information to be put together over time and over space to show the magnitude of violations. It takes time to build up a case for these serious human rights violations because you have to be able to show patterns of conduct taking place over time and over geography. And so to be able to do that, you have to put together uh, the information. And so it's a little bit early to have compiled that level of information to put it into a court. This sounds like a challenging space to work in. What inspired you and your team to tackle this? The initiative for the project uh, began in 2011, actually, when you saw the rise of social media and the posting of information coming out of conflict zones and other places that were experiencing large-scale human rights violations. And the executive director of the IVA was approached repeatedly to comment on the potential evidentiary value of that information and over and over would find himself having to say that even though the conduct in the footage did appear to be criminal without knowing more about where and when the footage was taken and if it had been edited in any way, 
there wasn't very much use, it could be put to towards investigations and trials. So you had individuals and organizations on the ground at great risk often collecting this information that could help raise awareness, but couldn't go any further towards holding the perpetrators accountable. And at the same time, you had courts and investigators looking at this information, seeing that it showed potential serious violations, but then not being able to use it. So that's the gap we really wanted to fill with the Eyewitness app. So you've got uh, degrees from the University of the Pacific and the John Hopkins University, both in the US, and now your current job sort of mixes this international relations background with law and with a more digital aspect. And I was wondering how your education prepared you for that. So I think I, I've taken a bit of a diverse path. So my undergraduate and graduate degree were indeed in international relations. And it happened that uh, at the time that I came out of school and was working in Washington, D.C., I started working on development projects focused on building the rule of law in developing countries and primarily in post-conflict zones. So I became immersed in this idea of transitional justice and the importance of holding perpetrators accountable uh, in the wake of mass human rights violations and the struggle with that and how different countries might approach it. And so it was that interest in different aspects of justice and different methods of holding uh, perpetrators accountable that then eventually led me to decide that I wanted to go to law school. So after working on rule of law development work for about 15 years, I went back to school and went to law school. And so it was the combination of the international background, the infield work on transitional justice and, and working with organizations who were doing documentation and, and seeing the challenges they faced, and then combining it with the technical legal background on the rules of evidence and court procedure that I think actually came together, you know, very serendipitously in this position that really does encompass all of those aspects. Wendy, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you face as a director of a project like this? Well, I think what is the biggest challenge is also probably what makes it the most exciting. So basically, even though the IBA is very well established as an organization, the Eyewitness Project is much more like a startup. So every aspect of it is new and developing and it's very multifaceted. So we have marketing component, the outreach component, policymaking component, technology, the law, and the use of digital evidence is an evolving area of law. Technology is constantly changing. So keeping abreast of those developments and then in terms of working with the documenters on the ground, it's a, an extensive trust building process. And these individuals and organizations are taking great risks uh, often to collect this information. And so they're quite cautious in the tools they use as they should be. And so it requires extensive discussions with them over a period of time to build their trust in the app itself and how it works in the security of the information collected and the anonymity of the user of the IBA and itself as an organization and how it might use the information, who has access to the information. So that's where we are right now with the project is the strong focus on outreach to potential users in these extensive discussions. 
it's also been really interesting to have to develop the new policies and procedures and protocols to match the evolving field and the fact that it's a new organization. So looking at how to determine the appropriate accountability mechanisms with which to share the information that we collect, ensuring that the data sharing protocols are safeguarding privacy rights, other types of policy issues like that. So it's very exciting to have a little bit of a clean slate to be developing these, but it's also a challenge to make sure that we're doing it appropriately in a way that safeguards the information, safeguards the users. I mean, you've been at the project for working on this project for over a year now. What's your key learning been and what is the thing you would have done differently or you would advise someone to do differently if they were doing something similar? I think that we learned we had to be a bit more flexible in our approach with how we worked with organizations. So the project really arose out of the crowdsourced information collection movement, but we quickly realized that it made more sense for the project to target organizations and individuals that were doing documentation because they were aware of the risks involved, they understand what information to be collected, and they have a reason to be out there collecting it, and so have a reason to have the app on their phone. And so we shifted our approach, I think, a bit to, to work with organizations more closely, and in doing so, learning how to better fit into their workflows, and so adapting how we handled data sharing, adapting how we handled consent and other aspects like that to make sure that we're really supporting the work of organizations on the ground, not just providing them a, a tool to use. I'm trying to figure out <laughs> how I want to follow up too, because I think your responses, Wendy, have just like unlocked new boxes in my brain that I... <laughs> I haven't thought to think about, you know. That's kind of how this project goes. <laughs> Every time you think you've answered a question, it raises three more. <laughs> That's exciting. I mean, is that what makes it exciting work to be involved with? It is really exciting work to be involved with, in large part because of the variety of the the project itself and because of the the job and, and the oversight of the different aspects of it. it. It really is a project that is at the nexus of, law, policy, technology, but includes the, the close work with organizations on the ground and with uh, doing human rights work or journalist and other reporting work, work with the tribunals. And so there's that relationship building. And so there really is marketing, outreach, policy development, technology development, and legal issues to be addressed all wrapped in one, which makes every day different, which keeps it really interesting and exciting. But in your job, do you ever see bureaucracy getting in the way of progress? And one of the reasons that we ask this question is for listeners out there who may be experiencing that feeling of being locked by bureaucracy in their own jobs, we're curious if you have any recommendations on how to combat that. I would say in, in our project itself, because it's so small, 
that that issue of bureaucracy internally is probably not as much as you might find in other larger organizations. And certainly I have worked in, in other larger organizations where I, I haven't seen that issue. However, I would say that in our working with other organizations, we've seen times at which their bureaucracies can slow the adoption of the app or temper their approach to how they might want to incorporate the app into their work or endorse the app. And the, the first thing I would say is, it's useful to determine what the bottom line concern is behind the, the what seem to be bureaucratic rules, because often the bureaucracy can actually serve as a good check and balance, especially when you're looking at new and evolving areas. And it, it does help you to stop and think through what the implications of what this new approach might be. But then going forward, seeing if there's a way to incorporate whatever new approach you're proposing while still addressing the bottom line concern. So it may not meet the rule on its face, but if you can justify how it still protects whatever that rule's intended to protect, then you might be able to get some traction. And another approach that we found that's actually quite successful is if you can find a champion within the organization. So if you're working with another organization, finding a champion in that organization to support and push the change or Find someone in your own organization who might have a bit more leverage to support and push the desired change, and maybe even just on a pilot scale. So often organizations may not want to adopt something new um, organization-wide, but if you can convince the, the powers in, in charge that trying it on a pilot scale might be one less threatening way to go about it. Wendy, that's incredible advice how how can we keep in touch with what you do both sort of maybe personally and professionally professionally i'd say the the best way to keep tabs on how the project's developing is through our social media sites so if you can follow us on twitter we regularly make announcements about new developments in the project um, new changes to the app that are coming out new materials we have available we also try to say a bit about where we've been doing some work in terms of regions. We generally don't mention countries or specific organizations. We also have a Facebook page, so we do post information on there as well. So you can certainly follow us on there. Um, for me personally, um, anyone who has questions about things, I'm always happy to um, respond to them. So you can find contact information for me through the, the project website and through LinkedIn. Um, I check that also. So that's another way to, to keep track of, of what's going on. We've covered advice on young professionals who may be working in bureaucratic settings, mm -hmm. but do you have any general career advice for young women out there that may be interested in pursuing a similar career path? or lessons that you've learned from your own career path? Absolutely. I think that uh, anyone who's interested in a career in international relations in particular, uh, the key is to be flexible. So even if you find an opportunity that may not be in the issue area you think you're most interested in, the experience and skills that you can learn are often transferable across different issue areas. And you may be surprised at uh, finding interest that you didn't realize that you had. I think that the great thing about international relations is that there's no right or wrong career path. 
And so nearly all opportunities really can add value, which opens you up to, to take more risks than you may otherwise be willing to take in a more straightforward career path. So I think that flexibility and the willingness to try new things is, is really helpful in this particular field. I think also field experience is very, very useful. If, if someone has the opportunity and the means to go overseas, maybe show up in country, offer to volunteer, whatever it takes, I think that's an incredibly useful skill set that employers highly value. What are your hopes for how digital can change brand policy? Well, I think we've seen that the rise in, in technology and, and digital tools have really helped raise awareness of world issues. And I think that that's been a positive move forward. And I think that the, the continuation of the use of technology tools in this field really can help push foreign policy, foreign policy engagement. So if you look in general with the rise of, of social media and citizen journalists and, and the use of smartphones in particular to share information, we, we've seen that regimes in power can't really as easily deny human rights violations anymore, oppressive actions and other conduct that they were really able to hide previously. And I think this forces a different foreign policy conversation. So I think this notion of, of using technology to continue that trend so that we no longer stop the discussion of denials, but move to greater engagement. There may not lead to change right away, but at least there's greater foreign policy and discussion around issues that are happening. And so I think that's an important role that tech has played. And I think it's an important role it can continue to play in the future, the more and more people who have access to technology, have access to internet, uh, and have access to information, I think really changes the playing field.